From KLCC Media, this is the Oregon Grapevine. I'm Barbara Dellenbach. The Oregon Grapevine highlights fresh-pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. Stephanie Chase is the executive director of the Libraries of Eastern Oregon and a member of the board of the American Library Association. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for being on the Oregon Grapevine. Thank you so much for having me, Barbara. Will you start, please, with an overview of what Libraries of Eastern Oregon, or LEO, is, does, the geographic area it covers, and so on? Sure. So the Libraries of Eastern Oregon uh, is a resource-sharing collaborative that covers the eastern portion of the state. So 16 of the 17 counties that are east of the Cascades, so all of the counties except Deschutes, and we're really, uh, that resource sharing cooperative really covers all and supports all of the public libraries that are on the eastern side of the state. And so that's uh, about 40 libraries, uh, just over 50 library locations. And the service area that those libraries cover is about two-thirds of the state, so about almost 60,000 square miles. And so you get a sense, I think, of the just huge geographic region out there that's being covered by a relatively small number of libraries. Um, all of which are classified as rural in the way that the government uh, classifies, um, and some of which are serving enormous geographic areas um, with relatively small populations and sometimes with only one location. Um, I grew up in rural New Hampshire, so on the East Coast, uh, and the thing I, I love that's a good kind of like brain setting to get yourself a sense of, of what we're talking about is when you look at the three big kind of southeastern counties, so Lake, Harney, and Mauser counties, they're about the size of the state of New Hampshire where I grew up or the state of Vermont in terms of square mileage. But each of those counties, uh, Lake and, and Harney in particular, um, have relatively small populations. So Lake and Harney counties have about eight or 9,000 people in them, uh, as opposed to something like New Hampshire with a million people or Vermont with 600,000. Harney has one library that's located in Burns. So you get a sense just of the scope of what public library services really try to do out east. And we're just, Leo's there just to try to help bring those libraries together that, again, are really separated by geography and, and often doing what they do with relatively small budgets. How did it come about that they decided to join together? What, what was the process for that? Yeah, so we're very thankful. There's a group of library leaders that got together now almost about 25 years ago uh, when we started to see this rise of special districts coming up in the state. So public libraries across the country are generally funded uh, by property tax. So there's a lot of misconception that libraries receive state or federal funding. Some do, that money is very limited. Most public libraries are, are overwhelmingly funded. And I'm talking about like 95, 98, 99% by uh, local tax. And so with special districts, you're able to create your own taxing district. And that money, you have a, a sense of control over that money about what your budget's going to be. But most libraries are really general fund departments. They're uh, part of their local municipal infrastructure, you know, at the town, city, county level. Um, and really dependent on kind of the rise, right, the ebb and flow of what's being collected locally. 
the libraries out east, or a collection of libraries that got together to see if they could make some progress forming a multi-county special district. So again, even at a county level, a lot of the counties are too small to really support um, a big library budget, a robust library budget. Uh, so they were really trying to work together to see if they could make movement happen there. Um, so of course that was challenging, um, you know, with the politics out east, very challenging uh, effort. But they retained together, even as they moved through that, uh, and really started to find ways that they could cooperate in other methods. So all of those libraries, in addition to having collective resource sharing through LEO, share a library catalog through a, another organization. Um, so there's still a lot of cooperation, uh, even as they weren't able to make the shared funding happen. I'd like to delve in a little of the line of politics and libraries and philosophy and so on. Obviously, nationwide, there have been some issues around libraries and freedom of conversation and this topic or that topic, depending on where people are. However, uh -huh. does it ever ring that, no, the library shouldn't even exist? It's just more a matter of what the content is? Or is kind of where is that philosophical discussion in your realm? Well, as you mentioned, I serve on the board for the American Library Association, so I also have this kind of perspective about what's happening across the, the nation, and I think the answer to that question is often very regional. And in my experience, I've been working in public libraries on both the East and the West Coast you know, now for more than 25 years, and I think uh, particularly kind of around the pandemic time and certainly post-pandemic, libraries have really become a very politicized issue. So, and that, I would say that on an aggregate level. Um, so when it comes down to uh, local, you know, what's happening to my library, I think that could look a little different, but certainly libraries at a national level have become very politicized. For me, the things that are really fundamental values, particularly of American public libraries around freedom of access, uh, freedom of information, um, those things, uh, that, that equitable, right, and inclusive perspective that libraries have had since the 19th century, um, and again, at some times uh, better than others, that's become really challenging. And the sense that parental control, in particular, a lot of the conversations around parental control, that there's a political movement to have that happen at a larger level than within your own family. So for a long time, libraries were really isolated from this, the sense that, again, that, that freedom that you have to walk into a library, just as I might be able to let my child choose whatever they want, you could have place limits on what your child could access. Um, and that a lot of policy around that in public libraries takes that perspective. The library very clearly is not acting in local parentis. Um, but I think we've seen in the past few years this really massive shift where uh, that's not good enough at a policy level, at an organizational level, um, that there is more control over what's happening in the library, what's being provided, what can be accessed, which is obviously in conflict, again, with that core value of really supporting the First Amendment, everyone's First Amendment right to access the information they need and the special um, responsibility that really any public institution, any publicly funded institution has to support that. But it's very rare, uh, in rare, rare circumstances, do we see when it really comes down to a local level that the libra a library will close. And 
close for us, there was an instance in southeastern um, Washington state. And that, that, that uh, challenge to the library that ultimately uh, had two community groups together pitted against each other, one who wanted to keep the library open, one who wanted to close the library, that that referendum or ballot measure, I can't remember if it made it onto the ballot, but it, it failed. So often we get down to this local level when, when the library is in threat, the community really comes together and in support of it. When it comes to a coalition that covers as many square miles as Leo and as many communities as Leo, even though we kind of, there are people who look at Oregon and go, oh, there's rural, there's urban, they're black and white, they clearly have these issues. When you're living in Burns, you are not the same as when you're living in Lakeview or when you're living in Baker City, et cetera. There are differences throughout those. So how does that work when these issues arise, if they arise, in terms of all of the libraries having conversations? Because I'm assuming some of the ability of Leo is for me in one small town to be able to get access to a book that we may not have in my town, but you may Mm -hmm. have somewhere Mm -hmm. else. So how is Mm -hmm. that? How does that work out? Well, so all of the libraries that are members of LEO are independent. So they pay us a membership fee, but they're independent, independently controlled by, again, their local municipality and or a board. Um, they have their own sets of policies. Uh, by becoming a part of LEO, they agree to work together and share in the capacities that we have. And the same with the catalog with SAGE. So the idea that you can be absolutely in Burns because you're part of this shared catalog, if Burns doesn't have a copy of a book, but Baker City does or Hood River does, um, then I can request that book and have it sent to me in Burns to pick up. Um, So I have access to a very large collection. And that's, again, one of the benefits of resource sharing when you have a group of libraries that can be financially challenged is the choices that I make about what's really suitable for my local community to really focus on that. What am I hearing from the people who are using the library? What does the data I have access to tell me um, I should buy more or less of? But for anything that falls outside of that, if another library owns it, I can have it sent to me. And that, to me, is one of the huge benefits of resource sharing. And then from our end, we're just really trying to work on making sure that the people who work at the libraries really feel connected. About a third of the libraries on the eastern side of our state are managed by a single staff person. They may or may not have some very, very part-time help, but generally are considered a solo uh, library. And so really making sure that people who are working in these spaces have someone to call, right? A resource, someone they can ask, uh, how did you handle this? What are you doing about this? Um, I need an idea about this. We feel is one of the really important things that we can provide because again, it's very hard for them to get together in person. In some of the larger cities, and certainly in Eugene, this is the case, Portland, this is the case, libraries have turned often into social service agencies. There's people that Uh need to go there for kind of day shelter work, essentially. Uh What is both from the ALA perspective and from your perspective Uh with Leo, how, what, what is that about? What what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, for me, again, I grew up in very rural New Hampshire, and when we think about the spaces in rural communities that are really open for people to come to where you can meet your friends and neighbors, right? You might have a general store, you might have a school, and you maybe have the transfer station, right? And you have the library. 
And for almost everything, right, in that, except the library, there's also church, of course, right, where you might be going for your spiritual um, connection. All those require you to kind of be part of a group or to spend money, except the library. So one of the greatest things that public libraries have always provided is just that gathering space that anybody is welcome in the door. That's the free public library spot. It's, you know, it's not a subscription library. You don't have to pay. It's not limited. Anyone can come in the doors. And so that means anybody can come in the doors. And that that is one of the great values of a public library. And then certainly what happens is those other places start to, to fall away or as those other spaces are commodified, um, if you don't have children in school, um, if you don't have a faith practice, you're really starting to limit where you can engage in your community. And again, the library really often steps in for that place. And so I think throughout my career, and particularly post-pandemic, I think we see this real desire for people to have that kind of connection space again. But we're also doing that really in a state of crisis. You know, I think any of us who felt like maybe we had our stuff together before the pandemic, I would say we probably generally feel pretty tired now, right? So um, imagine for anybody who was in any sense of, of crisis or any sense of, you know, kind of um, feeling unsteady, that then uh, post-pandemic is a lot of the supports that we pulled together through government, local, federal, or state fell away. Um, anybody who's kind of feeling that sense of unsteadiness is beyond tired. And, and that as we see these changes, and I think they're so sharp in our urban areas because we're seeing a real change in what our downtowns, how people use our downtowns. So for me, uh, especially I spent time working at the Central Library in downtown Portland, um, this kind of need of, of having warm or cool open space, access to a bathroom, a place to sit, um, and a place that wasn't really going to ask me what I was doing. If I was following the behavior uh, guidelines, like I was free to be there. Um, those spaces are, were always used in that way. Um, but now it feels so much visible because for people who do have other options, they're, they're often using those other options. And I think that the, that same piece um, happens out in rural areas because our rural areas have even fewer options, right, of places to go. Um, and it may not seem as visible or as present because the numbers might be smaller. And what we know, right, is people tend to also hide their challenges in a way, um, you know, so that homelessness exists in rural areas, but it looks more like sleeping on your, you know, your friend's couch or moving from couch to couch. So libraries in rural areas are having to deal with this kind of level of unsteadiness or this level of crisis, right, or this need for a space to be all day, um, just, just like our big urban libraries are. Um, and, the, and the challenge, I think, often in rural spaces is, is the, the depth of the need. So certainly in urban areas, there's a, there's a high volume, a lot of people. Um, but for me, my experience working in rural libraries and what I see and hear from the libraries out east, right, that still exists, but you really know who that person is, right? You, you know what they're going through. Um, and there's this kind of depth, um, this proximity uh, to the crisis that is very challenging for rural public library workers. Museums often have traveling exhibitions or ways to share resources, especially if they're smaller ones necessarily and they might be able to transfer things around. 
Is there mm. any of that going on with Leo, whether it's book collections or art or programs? Does any of that kind of sharing happen? Oh, yeah. And so I think that really depends on kind of what's being moved around. In Oregon, there have often been great partners, you know, the, uh, you know, OMSI, the Historical Society, Oregon Historical Society is often putting things together and certainly looking to have uh, those pieces move around out east too, again, recognizing um, that there's a real geographic challenge. Um, I'm trying to think, it's probably last year, might have been, it might have been earlier the year before, we worked with Oregon Black Pioneers. Uh, that's a group that really focuses on kind of black history uh, in Oregon. They had a traveling exhibit. And so what we did with Leo was we learned about the exhibit. We helped understand the space needs for the exhibit and then worked with them to find libraries that had space um, that could meet those needs. And so they ended up, I think it was in LaGrande, in Burns, and in Lakeview that that exhibit traveled around. So we're often trying to put those pieces together. Um, it's different times in Leo's past. We've played a real active role in that. Um, in the past, we've done some work with the Smithsonian, moving things around. Um, but absolutely, this is something that libraries are always really looking to. And it's just about matching the exhibit with the space. So when we can make that happen, libraries are often really excited to do so. I realize you said that each library is kind of governed in their own space, but is there also general conversations of someone might say, you know, we'd really like to have this collection of Japanese art, or we'd really like to have this collection of Oregon history, and do they have conversations about how, to, how about to share those collections or maybe giving a collection for a while or so on? Does, are those conversations happening, or is that specifically something that happens in an individual library when it comes to collections? So I think that's interesting. You know, I think, again, part of being a part of a, a larger group is you can recognize when you may or may not have limitations to making a collection as full as possible. And so I think both are happening. So, again, sometimes because the libraries are, again, independent and individual, there's often we see this with a real locally focused collection. That collection is created and maintained and housed by an individual library. But certainly, again, given access to uh, anybody who can travel and see it. Um, in other cases, and I think libraries do this all over the place. This is not just a, a Leo thing or just an Oregon thing. All over the place, libraries are often trying to do what you're describing, where you might say, oh, I have a piece of this, or I could share this with you, um, and try to put those fuller collections together. And we often, um, I think, see this uh, with a lot of history or genealogy. How do we start to make something more robust for people to access? And then digital has been huge for this. There are multiple libraries out east that are working with the State Library of Oregon's uh, Digital Heritage Northwest project um, to really make sure that those collections get digitized. Again, so really focusing on that access. Um, and trying to remove the barriers for people to access that and put those pieces together, right, to get a fuller picture. 20 years ago when the Eugene Library was built, the, the so-called new Eugene Library, the newest mm -hmm. Eugene Library, I guess, there were, there were a lot of conversations about libraries dying and books are dying and people aren't going to be reading them and why are you having them and everything's going electronic <laughs> and digital. You've got a national perspective besides the regional perspective. What mm -hmm. do you say to that? I mean, I think libraries are not going to go anywhere. <laughs> I think that people who often say libraries are dying have not been in the library for a long time. 
Um, you know, so I think this has come up throughout history. I also I teach a class that is really focuses on the foundations of library librarianship, library history. And we see this kind of throughout history where something changes and people think, oh, we don't need this anymore. Um, that happens, happened, of course, like with radio, it happened with television, it happened with the internet, it happened with ebooks. Um, but I think that human desire to share and that human desire to feel a part of a community, those are two things that I think have not changed over time. And the library is one of the best ways that we have to do that. There's a physicality about the library that is often so meaningful for a community. And so what changes, you know, things change in it, how many books you have, DVDs may come and go. I mean, whatever the physical item is could change, but the library, that sense of that somebody is really curating, right, and supporting and caring about the information that you want to access and providing you the space to kind of do that connection or do that exploration, I don't think that's going to go anywhere anytime soon. And there's a great book uh, called Palaces for the People by Eric Kleinenberg that talks about this. He, he talks about social infrastructure, um, that this is part of what uh, modern society is kind of stripped away. You know, people used to sit on the porch. People, we used to take more public transportation. You know, we used to have these different ways where we'd really interact with each other. Uh, and it's a real public health issue as we've moved away from some of that. Um, we see impacts on people's health. And, and he really points out about how, how just exemplar the library is uh, as an example of social infrastructure. So I just, I don't think they're going to go anywhere. And again, when we were talking about, you know, how they have become politicized, how we have seen some challenges around libraries and the mission uh, of public libraries in particular, um, communities tend to really rally around when it comes to risk. So it gives us a hint that people really value them regardless of what might be, you know, happening at the moment with a collection. Thank you so much for for bringing in a book a book suggestion. I should have thought of that. I, <laughs> I thank you for throwing that in there. <laughs> Always. <laughs> are there projects or improvements that are on your dream list or on the Leo's dream list that you hope take form? So for me, I think there's always so much possibility in being able to collaborate together. And with Leo, we're always, we talk about, we're always trying to save our member libraries time or money or both. So I think we're always just on the lookout for what that might be. Um, I've worked at some very large public libraries and I have also myself been a solo uh, librarian and I have never worked or heard of a library anywhere that has the resources they need to meet their demands. And so for me, anything that can help free up that really valuable staff time for interaction um, or for innovation or uh, for getting out into the community, meeting people, you know, really where they are, anything that I can do for that is really a dream project. Um, libraries are having to make really tough choices every day uh, because there's just simply not, again, not enough resource to meet the need, the perceived need, never mind what might be happening in communities where, again, access to that physical space or access to that information um, can really be meaningful and make a difference. So I know that's a very vague answer, but I'm always just looking for those, those opportunities. Um, and I think here in the U.S., we have a lot to learn from European libraries in particular about what that kind of communal and co-located space looks like. You know, how do we better reflect 
the type of movement people are having around their community in a day and where could a library be placed for that. And then I think there's a lot that we have to learn from our colleagues in Asia that have really embraced a level of self-service um, that ensures that there's really 24-hour access to the library. So as a whole, you know, those are two things that I'm, I'm always really interested in. Leo is obviously important in Oregon. It's the way it's built. As you've looked at kind of national library policies and library organizations, are there other states or other parts of the country where there's something similar to this and or is this pretty unique? How, how does that, and do, do they have, if there are others, is there a relationship between Leo and the one in, say, a Dakota or something? I don't know what yeah. other state might have it. Well, so I think we see these kind of collaborative resource sharing uh, organizations across the country. And some of them are more formal than others. So, for example, back in Vermont, where I, I was before I came to Oregon, uh, with two other colleagues, we founded the statewide library consortium that ensured access to ebooks and audiobooks. So now that was, you know, more than 15 years ago. You know, so that kind of that organization didn't exist, but together we saw the need for it, and it continues uh, to really run and provide that service and and some other services that those small and rural libraries would not be able to provide on their own. Um, we see it in Massachusetts, there are these strong regional systems. You know, Ohio is a state um, which has, does actually have a high level of state support. So you have very strong networks. And then, so you see these types of things happening all over based on geography, and then also certainly based on the type of library that they are. And that's particularly strong in the academic library space, your college and your university library is really thinking about um, for them, often the materials they need to provide in their collections are so expensive. Um, how can they work together to provide access uh, in a network? And then just in geography, as you move from east to west, um, you see as libraries were established, as you move west, they tend to have been established in more collaborative fashions. So instead of having, say, you know, 10 libraries in a county that are independent, that you might have a county library system with 10 locations. So you tend to see as the geography scales up, that the size of the organization scales up. Um, you know, one of the things, if we think back again, like to Harney County, you know, about the same square mileage as Vermont with one public library, you know, Vermont had, at the time I left, I think it's a little bit less now, around 190 individual, right, independent public libraries. So people are always trying to find ways uh, to work together. And uh, for me, I was the library director in Hillsborough prior to this position with Leo. And Washington County um, and Clackamas County both have these interesting cooperative setups, um, very similar where money is coming in at a county level and distributed to the independent libraries of the county uh, to ensure countywide library service. So all sorts of models of sharing really exist all across the country. Stephanie, what inspires you to do this work? For me, I, I just really think how important really the fabric of a community is. You know, and, and I think this is something that we've talked about for a long time, right? One of those moments was like, oh, well, our library's going to go away. I remember, you know, at the um, dot-com, before the dot-com bust, um, where there was this recognition of how lonely Right or how isolated a lot of our lives are 
these days, right? Many of us we work at work at home, um, and and for me, like I don't have anybody else that work with me <laughs> at home, and so the the feeling, right, and and the the connection of a community is just so important to me, um, and I think people are just really wonderful. Um, you know, I think there's a joke that people get into libraries right because of the books. But the people who are in libraries and are the happiest, in public libraries at least, I would say got into public libraries because of the people. Um, it's just really wonderful to feel a part of a community and to be working with that community to think of ways to, to continue to support it. And I think um, our public institutions are just such fine examples um, of that collaboration in action. I mean, of course, I also love to read, so there's a lot about what the library does that's really important to me, but it's just such a special thing um, to really feel like a part of a greater whole, and I say the library really helps, to, really helps to do that. Thank you so much. Stephanie Chase is with Libraries of Eastern Oregon, and I thank you for your time coming on the Oregon Grapevine. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to KLCC Media's The Oregon Grapevine, fresh pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live.